Welcome back to Horoscope Witch. It's Mal, and we're finally here. Dun dun dun. We're finally at the finale episode of The Artist's Way Book Club. Um, thanks for sticking with me, guys. I know that I've been dragging ass on this book and I <laughs> and I really have since the beginning, but you know, in my defense, this isn't just a book, right? And if you're reading along with me, you know the drill. Uh, you you know the deal. This book is like I said, more than just a book, it, it's really a way of life. And in order to truly implement what the book is saying, I think there's a lot of marination time that is needed. <laughs> so I think this book is sort of meant to be read more slowly or in small sections or, or piece by piece. And I, that's kind of what I've been trying to do at least. So you know, even though the book club has taken a, a little bit of a while to finish this specific choice of book, I don't regret it being a longer journey because I just love this book. I think it's so great. And I'm so glad that now, you know, I have this in my podcast archive. So, you know, even five years, 10 years from now, you know, people can still come back and find the Artist's Way episodes and they still have access to some of the wisdom from the artist's way. So I'm really happy that I chose this book. Uh, I say this every episode, um, but just in case you're new, the Horoscope Witch Book Club is sort of the most low-key book club you have ever been a part of. You don't even have to read the book if you don't want to. Um, it's just sort of me talking about um, different books that have really inspired my journey and have helped me not only as a creative, but also as someone with their own healing business. And even just as a human, these books have helped me. I do, I am kind of a sucker for like a self-help book. Like I, I do like a self-help book. Um, but this this is beyond a self-help book. This is really like, let's look at your shadow side book. And I think I said this in, in one of the previous episodes with the artist way as well but this is this is truly like a shadow working book and if you want to be a witch or if you want to be a healer or if you want to be a tarot card reader or whatever I think this book would be really good and the word artist has so many different interpretations and not once does Julia Cameron really make us feel like you know, even if you're not painting paintings every day or writing the next great American novel, I do feel like everybody can get something out of this book, which is good because that's what I look for when I choose these book club books. And again, if you're for some reason you've stumbled upon this episode, but you haven't, you're not familiar with the horoscope witch book club, I've done part one, part two, part three of this. So listen to those four first if you want before you listen to this one or you can just listen to this one um i'll put everything in the show notes and again you don't have to read the book you can just listen along my only goal is to really just share my excitement for a book um and maybe get you to read it eventually but again no pressure and since we're at the finale with this book at the end of the episode, I'm going to be announcing um, the next book club book. And if you've been in attendance to my 
which church um which i do on instagram live on sundays or at least i was doing on instagram live on sundays we'll be back in june we're taking a break in may um but i already announced the book there uh but i think most of you probably weren't there so i'm gonna re-announce at the end so awesome and can i just say too before we get into the the finale and we get into the the ending of this book i do feel like you know this whole book julia cameron the author has just been like dragging us (laughs) like she's been roasting us and she's been really calling us out on our bullshit she's been pointing out how our our mindset or our paradigms are very limited and we need to expand the way we think um she's really at least for me she's really kicked me in the gut here and there I do have to say, I feel like this last chunk of the book is almost like an encore. Like, <laughs> like we're like, yes, Julia, like slay me one more time. Like, <laughs> uh, it, it really, I think she might have her most powerful, like no bullshit advice in this last chunk. So I was sort of right now reading over some of the quotes I want to bring up. And I was like, damn, like these are like, kind of like this is some tough medicine to swallow these there's some tough tough pills to swallow here julia is giving us so maybe i'll just put this out there if you're feeling like particularly down today or even sometimes i've been in in a place in my life where i've done like so much self-examining that it's kind of spiraled me into maybe just like not being in a good mood or you know there's only so much self-examination you can do in one chunk of time if that makes sense so if you particularly feel like your shadow work or your self-examination is is kind of at the point where it's bringing you down or making you depressed maybe this this certain episode you might want to come back to a little bit later um but who knows maybe this could also help you I'm not gonna say I'm not going to say anything like mean or anything. There's just a few spots in here that I think are particularly, um, yeah, tough medicine to swallow. So I'll just put that out there. And I think that's about all I wanted to say before we get started. So let's get into it. So we left off on, you know, we the last episode, the ending of the last episode, Artist Way Part 3, we were sort of talking about jealousy and comparison um and now we're on week eight in the book so this is on page 129 and week eight we're now sort of recovering a sense of strength as the title suggests (laughs) so we're recovering our our inner sense of power we're reconnecting with where we have given our power away and in a sense we've done this the whole book sort of but again Julia's like one last time like let me hit hit you on the head with a hammer like (laughs) so I think she brings up a good point though on on 129 she she starts kind of talking about how all artists you know or even all creatives I like the word creative better because we're all creatives in some sense all creatives have experienced a sense of loss right um you know whether it be your your poem doesn't get accepted whether it be your art isn't in the show doesn't get picked for the show your your play gets canceled 
Um, even if you have a creative business like I do, maybe there's a month where you're not making as much money as you thought you would. You know, all creatives are going to face some sort of loss. And um, I'm going to read you here on page 129. Julia says, As mental health experts are quick to point out, in order to move through loss and beyond it, we must acknowledge it and share it. Because artistic losses are seldom openly acknowledged or mourned, they become artistic scar tissue that blocks artistic growth. Deemed too painful, too silly, too humiliating to share and so to heal, they become instead secret losses. If artistic creations are our brain children, artistic losses are our miscarriages okay so that's pretty powerful and you know i don't know if it really occurred to me until i read that where i was like wow i think she's really right i don't think we acknowledge our losses as much as we really need to as creatives and i think it's because like she says they're they're painful they they're too painful they're too silly they're too humiliating um there's sort of this sense of like if you get rejected or you get you know there's some kind of quote-unquote failure that that you stumble upon in your creative journey there's this sense of like brush it off don't let anybody know about it or like you don't really need to talk about it like just move on or or but when we do that maybe we do bypass a deeper a deeper grieving and a deeper mourning and it's funny that this topic see this is why i believe in divine timing because there's a reason that we're doing this today you know on may 19th 2020 in the middle of a pandemic where grieving is such a huge theme right now in the air um you know many of us may actually be be unconsciously or consciously grieving those artistic losses maybe for some of us a lot of artistic losses that we never did grieve maybe they're they're coming around now as we have time to sort of sit with our thoughts (laughs) we might be thinking about oh yeah like three years ago i worked really really hard on my book and i sent it to 10 people and it got rejected from all 10 publishers or whatever it may be we may even be mulling over the time in third grade when our teacher you know told us our drawing was fucked up or whatever you know like the the options are endless and i do feel like we underestimate how much of like how much it hurts (laughs) when we have an artistic loss because the art that we make the creations that we make those things are us those things are part of our soul so when those things get rejected I think it does hurt us and I don't think it makes me overly sensitive to say that. I just think that's the truth. And I think humans are much more sensitive than we want to admit. (laughs) Uh, But maybe that's just through the lens of a Pisces. But, you know. Um, And also, I was thinking too, we don't have that many stories floating around of of artistic loss um like purely artistic loss if that makes sense we have the story of oh 
like J.K. Rowling. Let's take J.K. Rowling. She's the the perfect example. Even if you uh, you haven't read the Harry Potter books, you probably know that J.K. Rowling got rejected like dozens of times for Harry Potter until a publisher accepted her. Okay, um, and that's like the ultimate success story, right? Because J.K. Rowling is the richest author who's ever lived um but she got rejected those couple dozen times right and she also had a very tumultuous life leading up to the publication of the first harry potter book now we like to tell that story because there's success at the end of it (laughs) you know like we can like there's a sense of jk rowling can tell that story because she's a billionaire is is she a billionaire she's definitely a millionaire if not a billionaire um you know so so that we can talk openly about that loss but maybe there's not enough open talk of of other artistic losses and I feel like sometimes we don't talk about our loss until we have a success um and I and you know I don't know if there's anything wrong with that but I also would like to normalize more you know speaking about our losses or speaking about our disappointments especially in the creative field because we really need to speak about those things and I find again cheesy here but I find I learn more way more from hearing someone's failure story than hearing someone's success story especially when it comes to the land of of healers you know I I know so many people now who have their own healing businesses and I truly appreciate when someone shares with me this did not work for me or this this fell flat on my face or this this just um this didn't sell or you know here's what I did wrong here I I truly truly appreciate when when people share those things with me and honestly I'm pretty darn willing to share those things with other people and I'm gonna start talking more openly about those failures too I think going forth and You know, on page 130, Julia Cameron, she also says, The unmourned disappointment becomes the barrier that separates us from our future dreams. So this is interesting because how many of us didn't mourn the disappointment, didn't mourn the the rejection or whatever, and then we got stuck? Yeah, like, does this sound familiar to anybody? And, you know, in the first episode I of the Artist Way podcast, um, I don't particularly remember what I shared about my creative journey. I think somewhere in there, um, you know, I, I shared where I was, um, I was a creative writing major in college, and I also was a religious studies major. A senior year of college, um, I had like two paths ahead of me, or at least I thought I did. Um, you know, one of those paths would be going to grad school to get my MFA in writing, and then that other path was going to teach English in Malaysia, right? And I'm pretty sure I already told this story, but just to kind of make the point here, I applied for, I think, six um MFA graduate programs my senior year of college oh my god like I don't even know how how did I even get 
stuff done. Like I, I look back to who I was in senior year of college and I wrote two thesis papers, applied to six grad schools, applied to a national grant, um, and was doing all this. I was the literary manager for the magazine. There was so many things I was doing. I don't even know how I was sleeping, but Um, you know, I applied to these six grad schools and I got rejected from every single one. And that was humiliating to me in some way. Like I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want to, you know, admit that because there was a part of me, a, my, my whole college career that I thought I was hot shit right? (laughs) Like, I thought I was a pretty darn good writer. And I think I am a good writer. Um, But, you know, to to have that and then not get into any of the grad schools that you apply to, I did find that really embarrassing. And I don't think I even told my writing mentor about the failures. And I don't think I told any of my writing professors that I didn't get in. Um, I think I kind of used my acceptance to go teach English in Malaysia, I use that as like the distraction. So if anybody needed an update, I would just be like, oh, like I'm going to teach English in Malaysia. But that that little thing about being rejected from all of those grad schools for writing, I do think it, it does unconsciously affect me because I did try to sweep it under the rug and I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and and yeah, and, and I don't know if I carry that much embarrassment about it now and we'll talk a little bit more about we're going to come back to this story a little bit later but I just thought I'd put that out there because I think grad school rejections sometimes can be particularly difficult because you put a lot of time and a lot of money into applying for grad schools it's fucking expensive to take the GRE that's like $300 then you know each application that you're putting out there is like anywhere from 50 to $100 i would say it's a minimum of $1000 to really apply to graduate school if you're applying to a handful of schools and your school requires the GRE it's expensive so you feel like wow like I just I spent all this money I did all this time and for like what like whoop de doodle do I got this rejection and now I'm supposed to feel motivated to try again like all this stuff is kind of you know I think we don't want to mourn it because it really hurts our pride so I just wanted to put that out there in case anybody else has had a similar experience but but hasn't been able to put war- words to it. Um, and, you know, Julia Cameron goes a little bit deeper into, I would say, like, academic trauma when it comes to creativity. Um, and on page 131, she says this, you know, she kind of offers... A, a criticism of the the highly academic climate and she says it took more years sorry it took more years and more teaching for me to realize that academia harbors a far more subtle and deadly foe to the creative spirit outright hostility after all can be encountered but far more dangerous far more soul-chilling is the subtle discounting that may numb students creatively in the academic grove. 
so she kind of brings up this idea that that like a fierce academic climate sort of numbs or or even discourages creativity and I think that's part of um maybe the ego or the the proving yourself as a creative because as creative people I think we know that we're smart you know like we know that you know we can do things that a lot of other academics may not be able to like sure we're not running statistics on like whatever you know I don't know we're not we're not like plugging in the numbers or doing like lab results and testing not to discount any of that stuff but you know we're it is something that's really difficult to do to lace together a poem or write a short story or you know to know your art history and to be an artist there's something there is something deeply intellectual about it but I think a lot of us just continuously get like shooed away or or shrugged off is just like oh creatives like and why do we have to categorize people either and I know I'm just kind of a hypocrite because I just did categorize us but I feel like in the world of academia it's like you're either a smart person or a creative person you're either an intellectual or you're a creative. Um, you can't be both and there's clearly a better answer, you know, of, of what you're doing. Or there's clearly a more impressive answer. And I think a lot of these things can kind of create, at least for me, it created sort of this this ego inside of me that really wanted to prove myself. Because I think I thought too that, if I got into that grad school or I got that poem published or whatever, um, you know, my other academic peers or even my parents or my family, although they saw me as a creative, aka not as smart as, as like a true intellectual, quote unquote, maybe the world would see me as, as the intelligent person that I am. If I had that, you know, Thing behind my name or if I had that proof like look I was accepted to grad school or whatever so I think that's also why that particular rejection hurt me the most because it's like my plan was foiled <laughs> you know my plan to be accepted by the external world and to get external validation was foiled but now I now I look back and I realize like it was all ego, right? And I think that might also be the toxicity and the trauma inside of the academic world. A lot of it is ego. And I hate to say this, uh, like I do hate to say this, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I do see reflections of this in the world of astrology too and in the community of astrologers now. So I'm, I'm trying to be very mindful that like, you know, there's a lot of astrologers, I think, who, who do want to do want to prove like their intellectual superiority over other people. And I try to be mindful of just like 
staying in my lane, like minding my own business, doing my own learning, not comparing myself to others, because I'd be lying if I said that sometimes the the world of astrology, you know, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't trigger my own like academic ego trauma thing going on, uh, because it definitely does. <laughs> so that's why I've kind of also been like, okay, you know, what's more important? Is it more important for me to just focus on my path and what I'm doing? Or is it more important for me to like, somehow, like prove to other people that I'm like a super smart astrologer? Yeah, like, and I, I'm trying, and I know that sounds really petty, but this is I'm just truly voicing what goes on inside of my lizard mind or monkey mind. And I think when we voice things too, we realize like, oh, that sounds dumb or like, oh, that sounds petty or like, oh, that's not actually me either. Like those things aren't actually me. If I really go to my soul, you know, my soul's voice, I truly want there to be like hundreds and thousands of really, really smart astrologers who can help people on their path. Uh, but yeah, and, and then when we connect to our soul's voice too, most of our soul's voices will say, you know, there is no competition. And we've talked about this too. So long story short, I think that's why our failure stories hurt too. Our failure stories don't hurt our soul, but they hurt our ego. Again, I know it's obvious, but this is part of the artistic recovery process. You kind of have to like really look at some of your stuff in the face and just be like, okay, yeah, it was obvious, but yet I didn't see it until now. (laughs) Um, And um, I'm also wondering too, like about all of the ways that our history and academia, um, you know, does it numb our creative impulses? Does it does it make us feel inherently lesser than to be creative people? Does the world label us as creative people versus the intellectuals? Are we all really just the same? And I think that sort of categorization that society tries to do to us, it, it comes so naturally. We try to do it um you know, we're categorized from the moment we get into school. You know, I remember being categorized like once we got into middle school too. the kit, we started being categorized into three different levels of classes. So you were like the normal classes, the slower, more like um, you needed help kind of classes, like you needed more attention kind of classes, or you were accelerated and going faster than than the normal average class. And even that, like, I don't know, did your school have that? My school had that from middle school up until high school. Even that categorization is kind of enough to fuck you up. <laughs> and I do think that there are certain norms in in school not only like categorizations of kids in classrooms but also uh things like act or the act or the sat or just standardized testing in general uh these are the kind of things that really fuck us up later and then you wake up and you're like me and you're like you know in your mid-20s and you're like okay this this did more damage than I realized uh 
the standardized testing really teaches us that we're a number that starts getting programmed, you know, right from the bat. Like you are your number. You are a score. Your intelligence is measured by these standards. And isn't that so harmful? And isn't it devastating that that is how our education system has been turning? And the thing about that is, guys, I don't know one teacher who advocates for standardized testing. Isn't that the sick part? Like, shouldn't it be the teachers who get the say of what works best for kids to cultivate their their education and their intelligence? I don't know one teacher who would advocate advocate for the standardized testing and all of that that kind of stuff right now um and that's truly truly a product of of capitalism and the government and uh you know i don't think it's too far off to say that you know standardized testing again teaches us that we're just a number in the system and then it makes us easier to flow into that later in life and become a number in the system and also sorry one more thing not to be too much of a conspiracy theorist but you know if we get very used to us our worth being measured by a number as early as first grade or as early as second or third grade um then we get very used to when we're older money the amount of money we have in the bank defining who we are because again we've already been conditioned to say oh i'm defined by this grade i'm defined by this percentage I'm defined by this number and then money is also numbers. So we get very programmed and very used to this. And I think that's why academia can be harmful to the creative a lot of the times because it's not that like flourishing garden that we want to be in. But that's not the teacher's fault. And uh, believe me, I, I used to be a teacher. I, I, I would burn, I would, if I could, I would take all the kids in the school if I was in charge and we would take our standardized tests out to a big bonfire and we would skip around that big fire all night long howling at the moon if I was in charge, okay? But I'm not in charge. <laughs> and yeah, so if you're a teacher, I, I feel you. I feel your pain because you don't want to be teaching from that that lesson plan either uh and yeah so moving on i think we we just julia cameron's ultimate point is we need to acknowledge how like academic conditioning or just like academic climate in general um does traumatize us and before i do move on i just want to point out too that like i'm literally speaking from um, such a privileged standpoint because I went to very, very, very well-funded public schools my entire life. Um, And uh, although that is my academic trauma and that's my truth, like being measured by a number and having to perform and get a number and impress and prove myself, there's also another side of academic trauma, which um, I think is the experience of a a lot of... um, you know, children of color in underprivileged schools, I think they have an entirely other traumatic experience that I can't necessarily speak to. But I, I do feel like the way we have our academic system set up, um, it, it really needs to change, truly. Um, so can't wait to see that all burn to the ground and 
<laughs> get rebuilt. Uh, yeah, so let's move on to page 134. Um, so, <laughs> um, sorry, guys. I am like, where, where are we going? Where are we, what are we doing? Um, oh, here we go. Okay. So 134. So going back to acknowledging our artistic losses, no inventory of our artistic injuries would be complete without acknowledging those wounds are self-inflicted. Um, many times as artists, we are offered a chance that we balk at, sabotaged by our fear, our low self-worth, or simply our other agendas. For an example, Grace is offered an art scholarship in another city, but doesn't want to leave Jerry, her boyfriend. She turns down the scholarship. Jack is offered a dream job in his field in a faraway city. It's a great job, but he turns it down because all of the friends and family he is where he is. Angela gets terrible reviews in a play and is then offered another lead in a challenging play. She turns it down. Um, these lost chances often haunt us bitterly later in, in our years. We will work more extensively later with our artistic U-turns, but for now, just continuing them as losses, counting them as losses begins the process of healing them. Okay, yes. So Julia brings up a good point here. We've got the losses like I just listed, like the grad school rejections. We've got the stuff that we can't really necessarily help. Like, you know, we try, we fail. What are you going to do? Um, we got academic trauma. What are you going to do? <laughs> uh, but there's also some other losses, like she said, that are very much self-inflicted. Like, oh, um, and, I, and I do feel like sometimes we're wounded by the rejection. And that actually makes us turn down the opportunity that's right around the corner. And in that case, we're not necessarily um, working with the universe. We're actually working against our own success and sabotaging ourselves. And also, we have some pretty lame excuses for why we turn things down, right? When really, at the end of the day, it's really about us being scared of our success. And I've said this in other episodes, but I think this book has really shown me that we are far more afraid of our success than we are our failure. Uh, and, and I think those examples that Julia just, that I just read, that Julia wrote, um, really, really tell us how, how truly afraid we are at, at, challenging ourselves and at maybe succeeding and kind of going back to like my um my story at the at, in my senior year of college when I got rejected from those grad schools but I got accepted to go teach English in Malaysia now I think back to that and I think maybe this is why I don't have as much grief over that as I used to um because I think back to that and I think oh my fucking god thank god I didn't get accepted to one of those grad schools because you know what? The place that I was my senior year of college, I would have chose the choice. I would have not chosen the sole choice of going to Malaysia. If I had the option, I probably would have chosen um, the ego choice, which one of these choices is going to look best to my family and my professors and which one of these choices is going to make me appear the most impressive. 
Okay, so if I had gotten accepted to one of those MFA programs, I fear I might have just went and turned down the Malaysia stuff. And God, I can't, I would not be here if I, if I hadn't gone to Malaysia and did the English teaching thing. Like I, now that's why that rejection story makes a lot of sense. And I'm not trying to belittle our, our pieces of rejection, but do also keep in mind that sometimes when we are rejected or sometimes when we are, um, you know, we suffer an artistic loss, sometimes truly it's just not in our path and there's something better on our path that's coming and I know that sounds so cheesy because it sounds cheesy because we sometimes our artistic losses don't even make sense until a couple years later right like my whole grad school rejection doesn't really make sense until right in this moment right when I finally have I think enough of my own self-worth and my own self-esteem to kind of even acknowledge I don't know if I really truly wanted to go to grad school in the first place you know I don't know if I really wanted that I think my ego wanted that and I think what my soul wanted luckily you know God or the universe had had me in mind and they were like nope we got to send mail to Malaysia because it's time for her to have her dark night of the soul so she's going there (laughs) uh yeah and how do we move past our our losses though like once we grieve how do we really how do we really get back on the playing field? You know, you picking up what I'm putting down. So on page 135, Julia, at Julia, um, she notes that she asks herself, um, how can this loss serve me? Where does it point to my work? And then she says, she kind of gives a little bit of an example of how she, you know, was getting rejection after rejection. Um, she was trying to do, quote-unquote, what you're supposed to do in the film world. Um, but finally, she realized it wasn't working for her, so she tried something crazy and different. She made her own independent film, and it actually did really well. And then on page 136, she says, Because I asked how instead of why me, I now have a modest first feature to my credit. And then a little bit more down the page on 136, she said, I learned when loss, when hit by a loss, I, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> guys, I'm sorry. It's like a lot of Gemini stuff going on. I think my mind's working um, faster than my, my words, but she says, I learned when hit by loss to ask the right question, what's next instead of why me? Whenever I have taken no for a final answer, I have stalled and gotten stuck. I have learned that the key to career resiliency is self-empowerment and choice. Okay. And, you know, she mentions a little bit, too, about, you know, how we how we may be tempted to complain and kind of stew in our in our loss. And I think, um, you know, how do we really stop the cycle of complaining? Um, <laughs> this is actually something I'm very passionate about because um, I I think there's really nothing, I really won't surround myself with anybody who I perceive as a complainer. Uh, I, I cannot 
that's the one trait that it's very triggering for me because if you grew up with anybody in your family close to you who was like a martyr or had that martyr archetype and was kind of like oh poor me I don't have this la 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 like just the complaining you know it it does really get at me so I've made it I purposefully made it so that I'm only surrounding myself with people who do not complain and just kind of take what they've got and and go with it and you know for the record I do feel like there's a difference between going through a transition and needing to talk about it or needing to vent or needing to mourn none of that is complaining you and me both know what true complaining is and complaining is kind of just like whining without a cause it's just and I think there's something about complaining too that repeats itself and I'm not saying I'm perfect I'm sure I've complained about something before um but you know the key to um you know the key to recognize like where am I mourning and where I'm where am I complaining complaining is on a loop so if you if you feel like you know um like that kind of you're stewing and sort of like oh this didn't work out or uh like I'm never gonna this is never gonna happen for me or like I keep getting rejected whatever it may be um I do feel like how do we stop that cycle I think like Julia Cameron says we need to ask how instead of why me how do I move past this instead of asking why me why am I you know God's um punching bag like why does god hate me like all this stuff you know and and when we when we're using our power of choice that's the best route because when we're constantly making informed and conscious choices it's very hard to sink into the frequency of martyr or complainer um but when we give up our choice and we suddenly fall into the frequency of i capital h have to do this or there's no way around this or la 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 that's when we're in the wrong frequency of creation and i don't think if we're in the if we're in the frequency of complaining or martyring um we can't we quite literally can't create we can't we cannot do it so how do we get ourselves out of this I think the first step is to mourn, mourn like she said, you know, we need to acknowledge our artistic losses in in a way that makes sense, right? In a way that that is true mourning. And I think we all know the difference between someone who is mourning and someone who is complaining, okay? After we mourn, then we come back and we say hello to our power to choose. (laughs) We say, hello, nice to see you again. I'm reawakening that part of myself that knows that no matter what happens, I always have a choice of how I'm going to behave or act tomorrow, right? And then on page 137, she says, take one small action to support your artist. Um, you know, so on page 137, you know, when she, she brings up a good point, when we do suffer our, an artistic loss, that's when like we really need to double down on the artist's way stuff. That's when we really need to double down on the self-care stuff. We really need to ask ourselves, how do I support my artist? Because right now, because my artist has been rejected, 
my artist is also feeling particularly vulnerable and might even talk themselves off the cliff of quitting of not being not making proactive choices you know falling into frequency of complaining and martyring and remember if we go off that cliff the whole artist way situation just doesn't happen okay um and you know she kind of goes back to on page 138 we're kind of talking a little bit about how age is often like a really big excuse amongst us all even if you're young or old I think a lot of us put a lot of our our I could never do this on our age and I've been so guilty of this right so she brings up a good point um 138 I'm too old for that ranks with I don't have money for it as a great block lie we use to prevent future exploration I'm too old is something we tell ourselves to save ourselves from the emotional cost of the ego deflation involved in being a beginner. (laughs) Yeah, and I think we've talked about this somewhere else in the book a little bit, but she goes deeper into it here. How, and I get this a lot, right? Because a lot of my clients are um, uh, significantly older than me. So I do feel like, Although, granted, no matter your age, sometimes, you know, when you feel called to go to any intuitive, you're usually on the cusp of something different, right? Or you're on the cusp of a change. or You're on the cusp of, of really wanting to change your life in a way that you never have before. And that's, that's a big thing, a big concern amongst a lot of people. And I think part of it is innocent. Like, oh, I'm too old to do that. I'm too old to start over. I'm too old to go back to school. Um, I'm too old to really pursue my dream. It's too late now. I hear that a lot. And part of me feels like it's not our fault because we've been so programmed by society to think that like once we get to a certain age, our life is over and there's only an acceptable x y or z to be doing when you're like 40 or 50 like and if you're not doing that you're like a little bit off your rocker (laughs) but on the other hand too she does make a good point like I'm too old for that and I don't have enough money they're two excuses they're the easiest excuses on planet earth and if you buy into that you know it's easy it's it's easy to buy into that it, it, and if you do buy into that it will also guarantee that you won't actually have to make the change you won't actually have to face your fear of doing something different because like you said you're too old and you don't have enough money well <laughs> cheers <laughs> That sounds pretty fucking boring. Like if I get to 50 years old and I start saying I'm too old and I don't have enough money and then I have to live like the last inshallah, God willing, if I have to live the last half of my life, like just living in that in that mindset of I'm too old to do anything like what what's even the point of being alive I'm sorry but like are you gonna be boring your entire life are you gonna like mix it up and do something different it's just I don't know and maybe it's easy for me to say that because I'm a young person but also I don't know like even and yeah let's talk about young people really quick let me call you guys out now (laughs) my own age group um I think a lot of people in our in in the in our twenties. I think we 
tend to discount the amount of things we can do. I think we genuinely use our age as an excuse not to do things because we're too young. Or we also try to do too many things at once and kind of inadvertently slow our path down because we're so like I gotta get this shit done like it's almost like the age like 30 or 35 or even 40 kind of feels like a ticking time bomb and for some reason once you get to that age you're like never gonna get anything done ever again so you gotta get it done now there's like all these age constraints and they're all an illusion. They're not real, right? They're just what we're thinking. And something that I've kind of, I think this is why I've been able to make peace with the grad school thing too. Um, You know, I'm not going to say that I'm never going to apply for grad school again. What I will say is right now I feel so elated and happy and content running my own business. You guys have no idea how much I love having my own business. And although, you know, I'm, I'm not rolling in the dough or anything right now, but you know, eventually, you know, I do have faith that this will be like in a really, a, a really abundant way to support myself. And, um, but you know, right now is grad school on the table? No. But like I said, am I going to get fucking bored when I'm 50? Probably. It might be on the list then. So I'm going to put that out there to you too. If you constantly are battling, should I go to grad school? Should I not? Should I go back to school? Should I not? And you're in your 20s. Okay, who's to say you can't do that when you're 50? Like, I'm sorry, there's no rules. You get to make your own rules up in life. And honestly, you know, um against popular opinion i think being a little bit older being past mid-age that's such a great time to go back to school i do you know how much i would have loved having um 50 or 60 year old people in my classes in college like that would have been so awesome to have age differences and i would have loved getting to know my classmate who was older and like had more life experience than me so don't discount your power either and every age has a gift um yeah so i don't know i just feel like we're all full of shit sometimes <laughs> so thanks julia she keeps she keeps slaying us um And also, in conclusion, on page 139, she also says, no creative act is ever finished. So again, another reason why all this age stuff, I'm too young, I'm too old, is just an illusion because it's all operating on the illusion that there's some destination that we're reaching. There's some end to our goal or our project. And it's just simply not true, right? We're never going to be done. If we're true creatives or we're true artists, we know that our 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 f- inner fire for creativity, it's never put out. There's never going to be a time when we're like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with creativity. I, actually, it's quite the opposite. Our creativity tends to eat at us. And no destination or goal or milestone is really going to give us that satisfaction of being done or being finished. So if we're never finished, 
might as well start anywhere that you're starting and it's going to be fine, right? And the other thing, I know I've said this before too, but I do truly think you arrive at your path at exactly the right time, okay? So do not doubt um, your age right now because you're exactly on your path at the right time right now. There's no doubt about that. If you're 60 years old and you're just reading this book now, um, and you're finally awakening to your artist, you're perfectly on time. Um, yeah. So let's flip to page 40. Uh, page 40. So she says, Julia Cameron says, focus on progress. Our creative life retains a sense of adventure. Focused on product, the same creative life can feel foolish or barren. We inherit the obsession with the product and the idea that art produces finished products from our consumer consumer oriented society. This focus creates a great deal of creative block. Yeah. Oh my God. The obsession with the product, guys. I would have to say, if I were to put money <laughs> on my most popular or strongest I should say my strongest block in my own personal life it's quite frankly it's the it's the obsession with the product and the the forgetting of the journey um and I know I'm not alone and uh, in that and I know it's it's really the capitalist conditioning that really keeps us on that produce produce the product the product even I said that to my therapist yesterday I was like you know, it's just hard because I don't feel like I truly celebrate what I've been able to accomplish. And I don't feel like I even have the thought or inkling, hey, let's take a week and really sit back and and really marinate in what I've been able to build. Um, Instead, it's like, I have my like laser vision on where I don't have enough or where I am dissatisfied with what I have. And that's not a good frequency to be be in. I don't like being in that frequency. I much prefer being in the frequency of of just being neutral and being content and okay with with what I have and, and just being happy and celebrating what I have. Like, you know, even today, like paid my 2019 taxes, like, Woo! Like, <laughs> like I would love, I'd love to just celebrate that. Like, that's awesome. Like, I'm so glad I, I paid my taxes. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful that I have a business that I have to pay taxes for? Isn't it? Isn't it amazing that I was, I was able to save money for when my taxes were coming around? Um, you know, isn't that awesome? I get to pay taxes on my business that I love amen (laughs) you know like and and I really tried to get into that frequency of just feeling really lucky that I paid my taxes and that felt so much better than just being like all right what's next let's go let's go and I and I don't like to be in that frequency that's not my natural state that's nobody's natural state and if anything you know that's what COVID has really taught us and I'm not the first person to say that right this isn't some unique revela- revelation that I'm delivering to you now. I think all of us have realized this in some way. And I think all of us are feeling the call to change our our grind, our work hard, play hard, whatever mentality. And we're just noticing like this isn't 
truly what it means to be human like we were we didn't come to earth to do this we came to earth to do something so much more powerful we came to earth to fucking create right and we can't do that when we're focused on the product so on page 141 we kind of talk a little bit about or julia talks about how yes focusing on the product is harmful but also this is good guys this is good Creative people are dramatic, and we use negative drama to scare ourselves out of our creativity with this notion of wholesale and often destructive change. Fantasizing about pursuing our art full-time, we fail to pursue it part-time or even at all. Okay, I love this, and this is perfect because you know, not to bring up astrology and because uh, I know this episode isn't focused on astrology necessarily, but, you know, we're going through a transit. We have been going through it since the beginning of May and we will technically not finish out this transit until the end of July and that's Venus squaring Neptune and there's no transit that is that is better equipped to kind of fill our heads with fantasies and illusions and it kind of makes us a little bit just not have a good grasp on reality right and this whole thing about creative people being dramatic I think it's true and I don't mean to offend anybody and I'll I'll admit to it I I can be a drama queen sure I'm sure I can um but I do find that it's funny, I was just talking to someone too about this. Um, I don't forget who it was, but we were talking about this in their birth chart. Um, people who have an abundance of creative energy, like me, like you, who is probably listening, guess what? When we don't use that energy for good, um, we start to unconsciously use it for bad. And we start to channel our golden creative juices into black smog of worry, depression, paranoia, um, like negative fantasies about like what's going to happen and all these bad things that are coming for us. Our creative energy, you know, where there's yin, there's yang. Where there's black, there's white. Where there's an... uh, reaction there's an equal equal and opposite action right so creativity is like that too creativity although it's this amazing life force it can be channeled very negatively so so do just sit on that like have you been channeling your creative flow in a productive and positive way or have you unconsciously let your creative flow kind of take over you and create these stories or these sort of failure narratives that haven't even happened? <laughs> like, I can't tell you, my imagination is so strong and my creativity is very strong that I can literally imagine a, a fake reality that doesn't exist and I can feel myself in that reality of let's say failure or let's say um fear or or let's say um material lack like I can feel myself in that in that 
negative fantasy like really deeply if I let myself but just because we can get ourselves to that place doesn't mean we can't get ourselves out and we can absolutely start channeling our creative energy more positively but it takes more consciousness and it takes more active effort and it takes more choice and you know what that reminded me of too um you know I think with manifestation Reverend uh, Sydney Flynn in um, the Onyx Healing, she's Onyx Healing on YouTube, and I think her podcast is called Sunday Messages with Sydney Flynn. Um, she taught me this about manifestation. You're either passively or actively manifesting. And I totally, now that I've realized what how to manifest, I totally agree. We are all manifestors. We are all master manifestors. But it's our choice if we're going to actively take our life by the reins and and work with the universe to create what we want. Or we can unconsciously, passively manifest our unhappiness because we have also consciously accepted that we will be unhappy. So that kind of reminds me too of what she said about creative people being dramatic and using negative drama to scare ourselves that's kind of like passively using your creative energy Uh, and it's it feels so much better even though it's more work it feels a lot better to use your creative energy actively um yeah so let me get a quick drink of water and let's go to Week nine, recovering a sense of compassion. Um, so here I like this point. Okay, the first page on page one, it would be 151. Where now we're kind of talking a little bit more about being blocked and how we can move past our blockages. And she says here on 151. Blocked artists are not lazy. They are blocked. (laughs) Being blocked and being lazy are two different things. The blocked artist typically expends a great deal of energy, just not visibly. The blocked artist spends energy on self-hatred, on regret, on grief, and on jealousy. The blocked artist spends energy on self-doubt. Yes. Oh my God. This This is awesome. Because... I am like the living example. Like I can say this and really say like I've been practicing what I've been preaching, if that makes sense. Because back in March when COVID started going down, I did a ritual on the Aries new moon and it was a self-doubt banishing ritual. And I did film this and I put it in my Patreon and you can watch it if you're interested in how I did this. Um, If you're more interested in the magical ritual side of creativity. Um, You know, and since I did that, guys, like I was so sick of being, of questioning every move that I was making. And I think I could feel 
unconsciously that I was on the cusp of a really big change and I was because I like completely moved my whole business from in person to online I'm now like 100% independent like I'm not working for anybody um like it's just me it's just horoscope witch enterprises like I did that you know again another thing that I didn't really celebrate but I, I do need to celebrate that so send me some snaps um I unconsciously felt that I was on the cusp of doing this. However, um, I had so much self-doubt that I kind of knew, too, that I would not be able to do what I'm doing if I kept expending so much energy on self-doubt. Like, I could no longer afford to continue to do that. (laughs) Because if I was going to run my own business and I was going to be, like, the face of everything that I'm doing, and if I was going to hold space for other people and other people's healing, like, I could not continue my my self-doubt spiral so I kind of put my foot down and I just got sick of it and I did a ritual for a long time probably about 60 days straight um and you know every single day I was just like I need to remind myself that I'm making the active choice to believe in myself and I'm making the active choice to to really banish self-doubt not to a point where you're like cocky and you're like you know like you don't care about other people's feelings or care about other people's opinions of course but I but I actually kind of needed a little bit of that like I don't care what people think or like I don't care what someone has to say about what I'm doing like if I feel good about it that's all that matters um so I love that she said that there and I also feel like yeah like I think we tend to be too hard on ourselves when we're we're blocked and I think I even like kind of sounded like this on the first couple episodes like you know that difference between being lazy and being blocked you're right Julia just like you're right about everything, you know, there is a difference between being lazy and being blocked. And I don't think we should, we should demonize or or punish ourselves for being blocked because being blocked happens. You can literally not be an artist without having periods of blockage. And, you know, unless I would say, unless you get really good and really seasoned at being in a creative flow and then giving yourself a rest and not rushing yourself and then being in a creative flow and then taking a rest and flow and rest. I think if you get really good at at balancing that and not shaming yourself for resting, I actually think you can get out of creative blockage for the most part. But, you know, nevertheless, I think everybody faces something like that. And even our biggest our best-selling authors or whatever like even I can imagine like selling a book or something and then like a publisher being like all right time for book two and let's say book one went really well like you might have like performance anxiety over the next book like oh my god how am I gonna do this so I don't think I don't think artist blockage really discriminates I think can happen to someone who has nothing published I think it can happen to someone who's an extremely popular artist doesn't matter about your popularity or how much money you're making it it just can happen right um (laughs) and she also says on page 152 
Do not call procrastination laziness. Call it fear. I've always felt this. And, you know, even before I kind of went more down a spiritual path, I I had a roommate um, who was the biggest procrastinator I've ever seen in my life to her detriment, truly. Um, and, but I, I think I, I didn't know I was doing this, but I intuitively noted inside of my own head that she was really afraid of something. Like the amount she was procrastinating was so ridiculous that I was like oh my god like what is she afraid of and then I realized that she was um afraid of failing I think she had a a, like a little bit of um like an inferiority complex or she kind of had a little bit of like a um a sort of like I don't think she truly knows how smart she is and again like we talked about in the in the academic trauma section of this episode earlier like academia can really fuck us up like academia can really convince us that we're not smart or and when we when we truly are we might not be smart on the test but quote unquote we might not you know score high on the test but that has nothing to do with our intelligence and I think just the process of her you know going through school and stuff I think it really did a number on her to the point where when she got to college there I think there was such a fear of continually being maybe the kid in class who like wasn't the star and maybe the kid in class who maybe was gonna get like the C or whatever um you know I I think that got to her and and I do think it, it really led to um a lot of self-demise, but I think she learned from it, and I think she knows now, um, I think she values herself so much better now that she has a job that she really loves, um, but anyways, just food for thought, if you're a huge procrastinator, what are you fucking afraid of? (laughs) Yeah, like, if you're procrast, you know, and I've said this before, um, sorry, I know I repeat myself, but you know what I procrastinate in life the most, um, that would be recording my podcast. <laughs> There's really no other thing I, I truly procrastinate in life right now um, besides working on my podcast because this is the spot of my life where, like, I do have a fear of success. Um, yeah, I think I've tried to remove that with, like, the self-doubt banishing that I've been doing the past couple months, but I do feel like I have been you know, pretty afraid of like, oh my god, like, what if this episode gets even more listens, or what if this reaches more people, or whatever, and I I think I want that, but I'm also equally afraid of that as well, so, you know, we always procrastinate, we might procrastinate the thing that we're good at, um, that could lead us to success, uh, and there's reason for that, so, yeah, that's very, very, very good, Julia, keep 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 it coming julia um so on let's skip to this 166 she does a part she writes a part about workaholics <laughs> you ready for this <laughs> okay so she says um on page 166 the truth is We are very often working to avoid ourselves, our spouse, or our real feelings. (laughs) I know, did like a knife just go into you? (laughs) Like, 
Like, do you need, do you need a tourniquet? Do you need a bandage? Like, <laughs> cause that one hurt, Julia, that hurt. Um, yeah, let me read that again. The truth is we are very often working to avoid ourselves, our spouses, our real feelings. So I don't think, I think that especially that part about avoiding our real feelings, that is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because if we're in a constant state of being a workaholic and we're in a constant state of overproductivity, we literally don't have time to listen to our soul. We don't have time to connect with who we truly are. We don't have time to connect with our heart space and ask our soul, what did you really be here, get here to do? What did you really come to earth to do? Um, what really is your passion? We don't have time to do that when we're working. You know what I mean? And so it makes sense. And I don't know if society really wants us to do that. Um, I think some of us do perhaps work ourselves to exhaustion to avoid ourselves and perhaps our spouses and perhaps some other problems. Um, you know, one of the best example that I have, um, and I didn't truly realize how fucked up this is until I started going to therapy. <laughs> Uh, but my grandma, uh, my grandma who immigrated from Italy, um, when she was around 13, she immigrated from like the boonies outside of Rome um, into to Chicago, right? And my grandma now to this day is around 85 years old. And up until COVID, she was working like six days a week. Okay, and 80 for 85 year old woman working six days a week she's worked in clothing sales her whole life um and and she does this and this is her lifeblood and she is distraught right now like she does not know what to do with herself because um the the woman doesn't know how to sit with herself you know and i know the reason um she keeps working there's a lot of things she doesn't want to think about you know she doesn't want to think about the death of her daughter and how that may be ungrieving she hasn't grieved that completely i don't think she wants to think about her trauma i don't think she wants to think about any of the abuse or just like the horrible things that have happened to her in this lifetime and you know i also don't think she's she acknowledges what she's done in this lifetime either so there's a lot of ancestral wounding for me, particularly when it comes to workaholism. And I think this is probably um, pretty popular. I can only speak for my ancestral lineage, but I would say if you are, um, you know, a grandchild or even a child or maybe you yourself, if you're an immigrant, I think there's some serious, serious trauma and some serious like overproductivity when it comes to working. Um, because not only did they just have to do what they had to do, you know, they were poor, they came to America, they kind of had to build themselves from the ground up. Um, you know, they had to do that. Um, but also to come to this country and to sort of arrive as nothing and to have this sort of impending societal expectation that you were going to prove yourself or, you know, to be of worth as an immigrant, you had to like work your ass off and that, that kind of thing really gets conditioned. But to this day, like, 
you know, I don't want to speak for my my grandma because obviously, obviously it's personal. That's my story of of her experience. Now, if you were to ask her why she still wants to work six days a week as an 84, 85-year-old woman, she would just say, oh, I like to work. It keeps me busy. What am I going to do? Sit at home all day? You know, she's an Aries, right? Um, so that that's like, I don't know. I think all I'm trying to say is it's interesting to examine workaholism as an ancestral wound. It's not only about us perhaps avoiding ourselves, but we could very well be avoiding the ancestral healing that needs to be done, right? Uh, so it goes back. It might go back many, many years, many lifetimes, many moms, many grandmas, <laughs> many grandpas. Um, so it's very interesting to think about. And it's funny because on page 167, I won't read this all, but she has this workaholics quiz. So, um, you know, just a couple things that you might want to mull over. Like, am I a workaholic? Um, you know, there's a couple questions she says. So, I take work with me on weekends. Seldom, often, or never. I take vacations. Seldom, often, or never. I try to do two things at once. Seldom, often, never. I allow myself free time between projects. Seldom, often, never. And here's my favorite one. I allow myself to achieve closure on tasks. Seldom, often, or never. So that almost stumped me. That was such a foreign idea. <laughs> do, you, do you achieve closure on tasks? Such a foreign idea that at first when I read that, I did not even know what she meant. <laughs> like closure, like I thought that was what you get, what you have to do after a relationship. Like this idea of having closure on your task or having closure on what you've created. It's so foreign to us, right? We never stop and get closure on something that we finished. We never stop and like say like, all right, cheers. Like, here's the celebration. I finished this. It's always like, I finished this. Okay, five minutes later, what else can I start, right? Or if even if we do give ourselves some kind of closure on a task, I don't think it's anywhere near what it could be. Like maybe it's like drinks with the girls or something, but maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we celebrate ourselves as much as we really should, you know? And, um, you know, on page 172, we kind of go a little bit back to this idea of jealousy, which we kind of talked a little bit about in part three. However, um, she makes some even deeper points about not so much jealousy this time, but competition. So on page 172, she says, competition is another spiritual drug. When we focus on competition, we poison our own well, impede our own progress. When we are longing the accomplishment of others, we take our eyes away from our own timeline. We ask ourselves the wrong questions, and those wrong questions give us the wrong answers. Yeah, yeah. I've kind of noticed that. You know, I would say quarantine has been a little bit of a lesson for me about 
minding my own business and staying in my own lane and and sort of a lesson about when we let go of competition and comparing ourselves to others we actually do our best work you know imagine (laughs) imagine how that works so I also think that when we when I find myself because I'm only human right like I compare myself to people I have Instagram just like you like I I see what other people are up to I see other people constantly who do the same shit as me like I must follow a hundred other astrologers tarot readers intuitives um I see what people are putting out there it's hard not to compare myself to someone else in my field but what I found too guys is when we do sink into the frequency of comparison or the frequency of obsession with what other people are doing you know what we've lost we've lost our own joy we've lost the joy of being on our own path and there's you know uh being being joyful on your own path and just celebrating your own accomplishments and staying in your own lane and minding your own business that's such a better frequency than being in the frequency of comparison and in the frequency of competition. And that's the thing too. I think I said this in the um in a little bit earlier, but I I like to think that you know there really is no such thing as competition. Competition is something that was created by the ego because there's a storyline that we don't have enough and God has a limited bank account and God has limited talent to give us. But when we step into what Julia Cameron is asking us to, or at least inviting us to, God has unlimited funds. God has unlimited talent. God wants to work with you. You know, the universe wants you to have what you have. This idea of competition and this idea of of jealousy it really dulls it loses its power it's amazing when you really start to shift and believe in yourself and believe that god wants the same thing for you as as you want for you as long as it's all in the highest of good it's really amazing what you can get done when you're not expending the the comparison you know to other people and even me like i've been noticing there's been a lot of classes like online classes that healing healers and healing artists have been putting out lately and i'm on the track to also release my first online class and i'm really excited and i've had to stop myself a few times along this path because i've known i wanted to do this since like april but i've had to stop myself and i've had to say Am I trying to release this at this date because it is in alignment or because I am sinking into the competition of other people releasing very similar things that I am? And then I've had to check myself and say, Mallory, are they actually releasing something that that is similar to yours or what or is what you are creating special to you? You know, and and I, again, cheesy. I know healing, sometimes it gets cheesy. But, um, you know, you, you truly are the only person who can create what you're going to create. And I also believe, you know, if, let's say, 
a student, quote unquote, like a future student that was going to study tarot with me. Let's say I wasn't getting the class out fast enough and they decided to take another class and I, quote unquote, lost that student. Okay, that's kind of ridiculous at the end of the day because they were obviously meant to go study with another person. And maybe that other person will inspire them so much more than I would have done. Or maybe that person will make them get tarot or astrology so much better than I would have been able to do for them. So that ultimately that choice was in alignment for everybody. And let's say that person decided to go to another tarot class. That leaves a spot for someone who can join my own class and and does actually mesh with my frequency and then I'm able to inspire that person and I'm able to you know whatever like make them get something that they've never gotten before so don't rush the timing of things I think that's really important too competition is again another thing that makes us feel like we're we're in a race it's so wrong we're never in a race we're always on time and ugh, such COVID, COVID has really given us some, some medicine, hasn't, hasn't it, hasn't it. Um, let's move on to page 181. I think we're going to go into, yes, we're going to go into week 11. Sorry, I lied. This is page 178. And we're going to revisit the idea of money and cash flow for artists, right? And I'm going to, this is a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it's important. So I think it's important for all of us to hear since it is Venus square Neptune and we might be getting, you know, running away with our illusions. And (laughs) I think this will ground us in reality. So week 11, recovering a sense of autonomy. And this paragraph is labeled as acceptance. So Julia says, I am an artist. As an artist, I may need a different mix of stability and flow from other people. I may find that a nine to five job steadies me and leaves me freer to create. Or I may find that a nine to five drains me of energy and leaves me unable to create. I must experiment with what works for me. Oh, isn't that so important? That's so important. An artist's cash flow is typically erratic. No law says we must be broke all the time, but the odds are good we may be broke some of the time. Good work will sometimes not sell. People will buy, but not pay promptly. The market may be rotten even when the work is great. I cannot control these factors. Being true to the inner artist often results in work that sells, but not always. I have to free myself from determining my value and the value of my work by my work market's value. Ding, ding, ding. The idea that money validates my credibility is very hard to shake. If money determines real art, um, then Gowan was a charlatan. As an artist, I must never have a home that looks like town and country, or I may. On the other hand, I may have a book of poems, a song, a piece of performance art, a film. I must learn that as an artist, my credibility... 
lies with God, me, and my work. In other words, if I have a poem to write, I need to write that poem, whether it will sell or not. Oh, gosh, Julia. Um, so um, here's the thing. Yeah. It takes, guys, guys, listen here. It takes a very, very, very large amount of self-worth and and the ability to validate oneself in order to walk this path. In order to walk the path as a healer, as a business owner, as a creative, as an artist, the single most important thing is not you know, the tarot cards you have, it's not the painting or the paint or the paintbrushes that you have. It's not the time or whatever. It's your ability to validate yourself. And again, another thing, now that I'm more into my second year of freelance healing, I feel like I've learned a lot from what I did in my first year. And, you know, maybe this didn't show on the podcast or in my videos or whatever, but there were times behind the scenes. Um, oh my gosh, guys, especially when I was working a lot more with in-person people. Um, you know, I was putting all of my validation in, in the person's hands. So I was having a lot of trouble with, you know, some readings. I wouldn't know if the person liked it or I wouldn't know if the person got anything out of it because they didn't give me really any feedback. Like it would kind of be like, okay, sit down, do the reading. And they'd be like, thank you. And then they would leave. And I just wouldn't know. I I wouldn't know. And that would literally eat at me because I, I would like, I don't know if I really helped that person. And I don't know if I did a good job. And even on some instances to, with like, I don't know, like online readings, like if you're a reader, you know the drill, like sometimes when you email someone a reading or whatever, they will email you back and they'll say some really nice things and there's other people who who don't. And by the way, there's no right or wrong and I'm not shading anybody whatsoever by saying this. I, I totally promise if you've gotten a reading from me and you haven't emailed me back or whatever like literally I'm not saying anything about you at all um but I, all I'm all I'm kind of trying to share here is that used to fuck me up <laughs> because I wouldn't know if I was doing a good job and suddenly it occurred to me my therapist was like Mallory this is really taking up a lot of energetic space um what would happen if you started to validate yourself and it's like the mind-blowing emoji. Like if I could insert that here, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. And she said, well, what what do you think you need to validate yourself in the situation of a reading? And I kind of thought about it. And I was like, I think I just need to know that I did my best. And if I did my best and I set the intention that I would do no harm... And I felt like I did my best and I did no harm. And, um, you know, I gave 100% or I gave as much as I could to that person. Then it literally does not matter if they email me back or not. And, you know, that was really powerful too. Because not only for the instances where I didn't hear feedback, 
But in the instances that I did hear feedback and someone really did say like, wow, like you were really awesome. Like, thank you so much. You've helped me, whatever. That, not that I don't appreciate those things because I definitely do. And I, and I really appreciate it actually. Um, and it does make me feel good. But that also started having way less power um, because although it makes me feel good to hear feedback, I don't think I need it as much as I used to. And that's so powerful. And suddenly it just feels neutral. If I don't get feedback from a reading, it's neutral. If I do get feedback from a reading, it's a little more than neutral, but I try to keep it neutral. I try not to take it personally either way. And it's taken me a really long time to get here. But I know the only reason I share that story is because as artists, as creatives, we kind of have the same thing happen to us here and there. If we're in a writer's workshop and we get really good feedback, if we take it too personally, we get cocky. And then we don't work as hard for the next one. You know, on the other hand, let's say we're an artist. We bring our sculpture to another workshop. Let's say it gets everybody's criticizing it, it gets really shit reviews or whatever. Um, as long as we know, though, that we tried really hard on it, we put a lot of effort in, and we can take that criticism and use it constructively, then at the end of the day, you become your sort of, like, almost, um, like, you're unmovable in a way. Like, your self-worth becomes unmovable, right? Uh, and, and I think that's really important thing to acknowledge on the path. And that's why I kind of share that story. Although it's not something that I, I want you to particularly know about me. Like, I don't want to admit that within my first year of being a reader, that these were things that I was, that were going through my mind. Like I prefer to maintain the, the illusion that I've was born perfectly confident but it just it's not like it just didn't happen you know especially going through the academic trauma where you know validation is literally your your juice it's your wellspring of of stuff yeah um so then she says on page 181 as an artist i don't need to be rich but i do need to be richly supported I cannot allow my emotional and intellectual life to stagnate or the work will show it. My life will show it. My temperament will show it. If I don't create, I get crabby. Um, and then a little bit later down the, down the paragraph, she says, ignoring my artist means a grinding depression. Okay, we'll get to that. But first I want to get to the part about to be an artist, I don't need to be rich, but I need to be richly supported. I can't tell you how much that's true because as much as we need to be our own wellspring of validation and we need to have our own self-worth, um, I think it never hurts to have our friends behind us cheering us on. It doesn't hurt when people say like, you're doing a good job. And it's not necessarily the people that you're working for. It's not necessarily your clients, but it's like your, your friends. It's your f whatever. If you're lucky enough to have a family member who does that for you, awesome. I think oftentimes we have to create our own family to sort of support us as well. And I think that's really important. I don't think we can be an artist just being like solo and not having anybody else supporting us. Like we really do need a circle. So if you've been struggling to get back on the artist's boat, 
lately. Um, literally, there's groups all over the world that do artist way groups or like there's writing workshops all over the world. There's support groups for writers and artists and painters all over the world right now. And they're probably more popular than ever because of COVID. Find one, do it, join a group, get that support that you need because it will make the difference, right? And let's go to the line, ignoring my artists means a grinding depression. Um, I do feel like, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, and I think I can only speak for my own personal experience with depression. But I think I've come to kind of question like, is my depression a chemical imbalance or is my depression like this really awful side effect of unresolved trauma that I'm not dealing with because I'm a workaholic, <laughs> you know? And also in, in not resolving that trauma in being a workaholic, then I'm also avoiding my inner creative. So of course that's my recipe for depression, right? Now I don't mean to like, I know that can be kind of harsh and I, and I don't mean to, um, you know, shame anybody with depression or whatever. Obviously I have a long history of having depression. This is the first time in my life where I felt like my mindset is my mindset has finally shifted when it comes to my depression. Um, and this is from someone who who's experienced depression probably at a really, really young age, like younger than you really should. Like I can remember feeling like that probably early in middle school. You know, I don't think I'm alone though. Because if you have childhood trauma, it, it, depression kind of goes hand in hand with that. But, you know, you realize somewhere in there, you start to think that this is just a part of me. Like, I'm just going to be depressed for the rest of my life. Like, this is just a part of me. Like, there had been so many times, more in my early 20s, where I just accepted, like, yep, depression is part of my life. Like, it's like this evil twin that kind of follows me around. And, you know, even when I wasn't feeling depressed and I had like three or three to five months or so where I was like at equilibrium and feeling okay, um, I would literally think to myself, I'd be afraid for like when it was going to turn. And I would be afraid of like when I was going to get back to depression, if that makes sense. And what has helped that? What has helped me shift out of that mindset is realizing um, that, quite frankly, I don't think that's correct. And you can argue with me and like if you want to, like if, if you have a different story, I'm not saying that you're wrong um, at all. And I know mental health commentary on mental health can be very sensitive and sometimes we're not in a place to hear something um, and that's okay too. So you can totally disagree with me and, and I don't really mean to be hurting anybody's feelings or whatever. But at the same time, maybe me saying this can change your perspective on your own mental health issues. Um, sure. Do chemical balances, imbalances exist? Absolutely. Sure. Do people, um, you know, does medication help a lot of people? Absolutely. Is there any shame? Absolutely not. Um, but also, is there is there another side of the story that we're not necessarily getting? Yes. Absolutely, yes. And that is 
I think, and I feel very strongly, energetically, spiritually, emotionally, intuitively, um, physically, <laughs> like every fiber of my being, you know, once I realized that my depression is a side effect of my unresolved trauma, that changed everything for me. And then that kind of changed my life and in many, many ways. Wow, this episode is really making me realize like, I think I've become a different person um, since I since I even started this episode, like or this um, this series. Uh, and it's not all because of the artist way, but I think the artist way has had something to do with it. Just shifting my mindset, um, it's been so helpful. So, yeah, it, it's something. There's something empowering uh, about saying like, you know, this is my side effect from trauma. And I have the power to heal my trauma. It's going to take some fucking work. (laughs) We're going to need a team. We're going to need support. But we can do it, right? And the one other thing I wanted to say, too, about the thing, uh, an artist, we don't need to be rich, um, you know, or the workaholic thing. I think something else I've realized, too, about my life, and maybe some of you can kind of, um, sorry, I, I know I've talked a lot about myself this episode, I didn't mean for it to be like that. And also this episode has just gotten really long, but we're just going to have it be a long episode. Um, But I realized too about myself, as I've been clearing out a lot of my conditioning and a lot of just garbage that that I've absorbed, and even my experience living in Malaysia where I, I had the least amount of stuff that I ever have, um, and I was no less happy or sad imagine that (laughs) um you know I realized that I don't want to spend my life working (laughs) maybe that makes me sound like a spoiled millennial but I just don't the uh, having like a huge amount of money isn't worth it to me like I want to spend my life cultivating my life I want to spend my life cultivating my creativity I want to spend my life, although I have my own business and money is important to me and I'm not shaming money at all. I love money. I love that I'm creating something that will be abundantly supportive, you know, as I go more and more into the journey. But I've also realized like, I don't, I don't, that shit doesn't matter to me. Like the big house, the big car or whatever. So many people have that stuff and they're miserable. And I know this is not enlightening, um, a realization. I know we've all seen this, you know, it's like the oldest story in the book. Like the rich person is no more happier than the poor person or whatever. But I just, I don't know. I I don't want to spend my life working in a way. I don't want to spend my life, um, doing things that I don't enjoy and maybe that's naive of me and I'm not saying I think it's going to be easy an easy path believe me I think I recognize that I've I've taken a little bit of a more difficult path with this mindset um but you know people who are going against the society's norms will face some more challenges in their path but it's not to say it's not going to be worth it right so I think this book also really made me think about like what is it do I really want what do I really need? And is my happiness really about, you know, the money? This is from someone who who does typically have the tendency to really place a lot of my worth off of the money I'm making, which currently, that's the current lesson right now that I'm trying to kind of shift out of. And yeah, guys, okay, we are, we got to speed this up. Like, let's get to the 
let's get to the end here. We're going to skip some things um, because there's only so much stuff we can cover. I'm going to get a drink of water. Okay, so Julia li leaves us with some, you know, final songs, some final mantras. Um, week 12, which is page 194. She says, faith, um, creativity requires faith. Faith requires that we relinquish control. So this is an awesome time to do that because we have no other choice. <laughs> we can either have faith and relinquish control or be panicked, miserable people who are trying to control something that they can so clearly not control, right? Um, so if anything, right now, the current climate, current pandemic is the literal perfect time to, to realize, um, I need to learn to have faith. Maybe I need to shift from control freak, freak to, to needing to have faith, <laughs> needing to put a little bit more stock in what the universe and what God is doing. You know, and I think a lot of us might actually be in that position where we kind of have no other, no other no other choice. Like it's time to have some faith, right? And I'm 194. Um, the truth is that we are meant to be bountiful and live. The universe will always be supportive. Um, be a will always support affirmative action. Our truest dream for ourselves is always God's will for us. Ah, uh, how many things in society and school and just people, how many things have taught us the exact opposite? You know, it's really sad now that I think about it. <laughs> like we've been taught such the opposite of, of God is on our side and God wants us to do what we want to do, you know? But I think Julia has a point, right? And, um, you know, finally, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip this. She kind of talks a little bit about how sometimes like when we're on the cusp of greatness or we're on the cusp of really breaking through something and we're on the cusp of changing our frequency, um, you know, there might be a test presented to us. And I think it's interesting that this is kind of coming at the last few pages of the book. She mentions like, there may be a test and I wouldn't be surprised because a lot of us are changing our frequency right now. A lot of us are deciding I want to do something different. I can't go back to normal. I can't go back to who I was. Um, I can't go back to what I was doing. I need something different. I'm changing my life. If we're in that frequency, uh, we, we may very well um, maybe attract a test. Now, I don't like to think like spirit is like sending us like I don't know hurdles to jump over um just to be mean I think these tests really do show up to ask us like are you really ready for what you're asking for are you really gonna like put the put the sword in the dragon and like really kill that demon um and really go on a new path so she says um on page 198, think of it. You're all set to go to the coast on an important business trip and your husband suddenly needs you, capital N, for no reason. You're all set to leave the bad job and the boss from hell suddenly gives you your first raise in five years. 
don't be fooled, don't be fooled. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't, I don't know if I particularly have an example of a test right now. Um, I think oftentimes when we're trying to shift who we are, there might be something that kind of pulls us back in to our old self. And this is all subjective, right? But let's say we have our sights on living in a new city and like a month before we're about to like move and not sign our lease, we meet someone and then we decide to stay. You know, when in reality, like, if that person was truly meant for us, they would have probably made it work doing long distance. And maybe they would have even wanted to move with us eventually anyways. You know, like, there's certain things like that that just pop up. Like, right before expansion, something happens. Right before um, we're, we're about to leave the nest and fly our wings, the nest seems all that more comfortable I think we just need to be aware of this. And I actually think our intuition can really help us determine, is this a test or is this actually an opportunity that is in alignment for me? Okay. Um, So I put that out there because I don't know, maybe there will be some tests more this summer or the end of summer for a lot of us who are right now saying, I don't want to go back to normal Well, maybe normal does knock on our door at the end of the summer and says, hey, come on back. I've got a pay raise for you. Or hey, come on back. I'm promoting you. What are we going to do then? Like how how committed are we to this new path? How much are we going to like how much are we going to actually. I guess. Marry our desires or marry our what we actually want you know okay and then lastly let me just read this last part on page 200 okay the last part this is this is good do not indulge or tolerate anyone who throws cold water in your direction forget good intentions forget they didn't mean it Remember to count your blessings and your toes. Escape velocity requires the sword of the steely intention and the shield of the self-determination. They will try to get you. Don't forget that, warns Michelle. Set your goals and set your boundaries. I would add, set your sights and don't let the ogre that looms on the horizon deflect your flight. I really like that metaphor, the sword of steely initiation and the shield of self-determination. Because no matter what you're going to commit to, someone is going to have some shit to say about it. And you have the choice whether or not you're going to continue, continue letting this person, you know, sort of inject self-doubt inside of you. There's so many stories I hear, like, people saying, like, I want to do this, but my boyfriend says it's stupid. Or my, uh, I I would love to do this, but I got to do this for my parents. Or whatever it may be, whatever bullshit we, like, talk ourselves into buying. Oh, my God. If only we just had our intention and a little bit of a shield where we could say, actually, I could deflect that. I could deflect that, the haters. 
<laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's all I got, guys. This book really has changed um, a lot for me, and I, I look forward to rereading it one day. And although I don't necessarily know if it was the right time to use this book as, like, I'm going to get back on my writing and poetry grind, but I can say this book has helped my business. This book has helped me make more money. This book has helped me take the leap that I needed to take with my own business. It's just, it's helped a lot. And I would say my business is a creative endeavor anyways. So I think the original purpose of reading this book did not ultimately lead to where I was thought it was going to take me, but where it did take me was somewhere even more powerful. And I look forward to rereading this at some point in my life, um, probably every couple years to make sure like I'm still staying on that path. Um, ultimately, I think my favorite, favorite thing out of this whole book was, you know, God wants you to have what you want and God has an unlimited bank account. You know, stop saying that the money is the thing that's holding you back when it's actually you. And, um, yeah, that, that felt really powerful to me. And uh, there's so many other powerful things. So thank you guys so much for coming on this journey with me. And I've really enjoyed hearing about your own realizations with The Artist's Way. And, um, yeah, so the next book club book dun, 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 is called the highly sensitive person how to thrive when the world overwhelms you by elaine n aaron so i will put this book in the show notes this book is all about like the title suggests how to thrive when the world overwhelms you um i i'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this as creatives you may also identify as a highly sensitive person also known as an empath, also known as an intuitive. Um, I wish, I wish, I wish I read this book sooner. It's really made a difference for me. And I have a feeling this book hopefully will go a little bit faster um, because it's not necessarily a program like The Artist's Way. So we should be able to knock this out in a couple months. But as always, it's a no-pressure book club. So if you want to wait for the first episode hear me talk about it, see if you want it, you want to like buy it and be a part of it, that's totally cool. Or if by now you trust that I am really, really good <laughs> at picking out books that are going to change your life, <laughs> you can hop on the bandwagon now. Again, I'll leave that all in the show notes. And I am planning to make a sort of introduction episode to this book before we even go into it because I want to talk more about my experience as a highly sensitive person so and why I feel so drawn to this book so that's gonna come along too so thank you friends I hope you loved this episode I hope you got something on this episode I hope I left you feeling a little bit more inspired than two hours ago <laughs> and I look forward to chatting with you in the next episode talk to you soon before you go I just wanted to say thank you so much to my patreon supporters 
You are all supporting the creation of this podcast in a bigger way than you even realize. If you want to know more about my offerings on Patreon, including access to the Secret Horoscope Witch YouTube channel, the link is in the show notes. I am a professional astrologer, tarot reader, Reiki practitioner, and psychic intuitive. If you are interested in working with me one-on-one or getting a reading from me, you can visit my website, horoscopewitch.com, to learn more about my offerings. If you find this podcast to be helpful, I would greatly appreciate your rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews not only make my day, but also increase the chances of others finding this podcast too. And if you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend.